Open up to John chapter 8. When I lay out a sermon series, uh, there are certain passages in a book or, or topics, if we're going through a topical study, that I just look forward to. I'm so excited about. Sometimes there are others that I just know because it's in the text or it's important. We're, we're going to go through it, have to go through it, and, and, and that's important. Very rarely are there sections or passages that I am just dreading. Today is one of those. Um, and, and I'll just state it at the outset. Some of you, as we walk through this, are going to get angry with me. Some of you are not going to like what I have to say. Uh, I, I pray you can hear this with grace, but we're going to go through this. Now, why am I saying this? Well, today we're going through John seven fifty three. Uh, through chapter 8, verse 30, and I'll tell you at the outset, if first service was any indication, we're not going to get nearly that far, but I hope at least to get through verse 12. And if you're looking at your Bible, and your Bible is at all like mine, you have a phrase right before chapter 7, verse 53, and maybe even the font is different from 753 down through 811. And this is a very well-known story. It is often a favorite story, a woman being caught in adultery, brought before Jesus, and, and him saying, I don't condemn you. And it's the famous passage of let him who casts the first stone, or let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And the NIV has what a lot of the other ones have, and similar either at a footnote or in the text, has in brackets, the earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have John chapter 7, verses 53 through chapter 8, verse 11. A few manuscripts include these verses wholly or in part after John 7, 36, John 21, 25, Luke 21, 38, or Luke 24, 53. So the question is, should this passage be at this place in our Bible or should it be somewhere else? And the harder question is, should it be in our Bible at all? And my answer today is no. This text, according to the best scholarship that we have, was not written by John. It was added at a much later date. May or may not be true, don't know. But even if it is true, I don't believe it is part of the inerrant, inspired, written word of God. And, and I hope today to just briefly explain to you why I believe that. And I'm not, please understand, this is not Pastor Dave getting up here and being crazy. I've studied this based on the best scholars of today and, and the best archaeological evidence that we have today. Scholars say this was not in the original text. We talked in the fall about sola scriptura, that as a church, as Christians, we base what we believe on the authority of God's word alone. What, what somebody teaches does not override the authority of God's word. What tradition has brought to us does not override the authority of God's word. Our opinions do not override the authority of God's word. We base what we do on the authority of God's word alone. And I believe that when I stand up here and teach you, as I hope anybody that teaches in this church thinks this way, that we are examining, opening up the word of God. And saying, we have to deal with this because it is the very word of God. And so I've wrestled with this passage saying, is it the word of God? And if it isn't, how can I preach it? How can I stand up here and treat it as if it is the word of God 
when scholars are fairly unanimous in saying it wasn't there. So, now that I've raised all sorts of questions in your mind, let me just talk about why I believe what I believe. And I want to use this, ironically, to help educate you on how we got the Word of God. How do we have this book in front of us? And why it is incredibly trustworthy. And and there's the irony. How are we going to look at a passage that I'm saying shouldn't be there, and scholars are saying shouldn't be there, even the translators are saying it shouldn't be there, and I wish they would quit putting it in there. We'll talk about why they do. But I want to use this as an opportunity, hopefully, even as I raise the question, to help answer it and say this is an incredibly trustworthy book. Now, why? Why do scholars believe? This is not scholars looking at this passage and saying, well, I just don't like it. I don't like things that... If if anything, it's the exact opposite. It's a wonderful, it's a beautiful passage. But here's why. And I'm going to take these right from John Piper. He preached on this passage. He had a very succinct uh, summary of the things that I wanted to say. So I'm going to read for you the things he points out. This story, John 8, 53 to 8, 11 is missing from all the Greek manuscripts of John before the 5th century. What this means is that for 300 years of of the Word of God being copied, this was not in there. All of the earliest church fathers omit this passage when they comment on the book of John. Just like today, back then, people would write commentaries or, or running sermons on portions of the Bible. And when the earliest church fathers walked through the book of John, they skipped from John 52, John 7:52 to 8:12. Now I hope, let me just step aside for a second. I hope you understand the numbers weren't added till much later. Much later. They weren't in the they're just there to help us turn to things, okay? The numbers not inspired. It's just there to help you find things. So as we look at this running commentary of the early church fathers, when they just Act like it's not there. It has to cause us the question, why? And the answer is because it wasn't there in the text that they had, the early texts that they were dealing with. No Eastern Church Father cites this passage before the 10th century when dealing with this gospel. When the story does start to appear in in the manuscript copies of John, it shows up in three different places other than here, and I've already listed those. And in one other manuscript of Luke, it shows up uh, in chapter 21, which means even later in history, when it begins to appear in the manuscripts, it's moved around often. People don't know where to put it. Finally, the style and the vocabulary of this passage is completely unlike the rest of the book of John. It reads as though somebody else wrote it. You're not going to see that as easily in the English, but there's one phrase in particular that really stuck stuck out to me. Verse 3, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. Now you might think, ah, that's no big deal. I hear that all the time. You do in Matthew. You do in Luke. You do in Mark. You never hear the phrase, the teacher of the law, in John. In some other translations, it's scribe. It's not a phrase that John uses. He calls them the Jews. He refers to the Pharisees often, but never to the scribes, only here. Now, based on that, and and again, that's a very brief summary, based on people much smarter than I, who say this, this wasn't part of the original text, I cannot in good faith stand up in front of you and preach it as if it is the word of God. And I'm sorry if this is one of your favorite stories, um, 
Anything that's in here that has any doctrinal value can be found elsewhere in the Bible. Uh, There's nothing, I would say, heretical in it. But I can't stand up here and say, thus says the Lord, when I don't believe that God had John write that down. Now, that being said, it raises the question, and I understand it raises the question, and I struggled with this. Do I raise this question? How do we trust any of it? If, if the pastor is going to stay up, stand up here, or even the translators are going to say, hey, this probably shouldn't be here. Well, what about other phrases? What about John 3.16? I mean, does God really love the world? Did he really send his son to die for the world? How can we trust in anything? And so I want to just quickly, as quickly as I can, help you to understand how we came to have the text of the Bible in front of us today. Hopefully for you to see, one, how some of these errors did creep in occasionally, but also, two, how most of them are caught over and over and over again and corrected, and three, overwhelmingly to show how trustworthy this manuscript is. Now, it started, all of the books, in some way, shape, or form, started with somebody. In this case, the Gospel of John. John wrote it. John sat down and wrote this out. In some cases, other people used a a secretary. Uh, They might have dictated it. Paul did that often. But it's still, it's Paul's words. And it's what God inspired Paul to write. It is the very inspired word of God. And so what we believe as Christians is that those original documents written by those authors under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that is the authoritative, inspired word of God without error. John wrote this. And he wrote it with an audience in mind. He sent it to them. Sometimes it would have been sent to travel around an area. Uh, sometimes, like Paul with, the, with Romans, it was written to Rome. And so they sent it to Rome. It would get there and the church would pour over it. They would teach it. They would preach through it. They would uh, uh, memorize it. They would discuss it. They would apply it to their life. But they also understood it had a greater application than just them. Other churches need to hear this. Sometimes they would send it on, but other times they would copy it, word for word, and very carefully. Sometimes they would take a document, somebody would read it, and four, five, ten, twenty scribes would sit down and they would all copy it. And that one letter turned into ten copies. Those copies would be distributed to other churches in the area, other cities around the Roman Empire. Those cities, same way, they would read it, they would preach it, they would teach it, realize other people need to hear this. So somebody would stand up and they would begin to read it and other scribes would sit down and they would write it out and they would have a copy of the copy. Those copies would go out and the process would repeat over and over and over again. For 1,500 years, these copies of various books of the Bible, these various letters that were sent out and the Gospels were written and copied over and over and over again. It wasn't until about 1500 AD that Erasmus, a Greek scholar, sat down and compiled them all into the singular book that we know of as the New Testament. Now understand, I'm not saying they didn't have the New Testament, they just didn't have it all in one place, compiled one thing. Many of the earliest then English and German Uh, Translations of scripture were based on that compiled Greek text of Erasmus that was put together with the copies that he was able to find at that time. Over those years, whenever somebody went to translate the Bible, they would use the best manuscripts they had at that time. The King James Bible was translated in 1611. 
They used wonderful scholarship, compiled manuscripts, put together a very good and usable translation based on the best documents they had at that time. But that was 400 years ago. 400 years of archaeology and study and science has gone by, and archaeologists have found earlier documents. And when you find an earlier document, you are closer to what John wrote, with less chance of other things being added into it and copied and recopied. Because what happens is if an error or a scribe says, man, this really needs to be in there, and they put something in, then that goes to this church, it gets copied. Those copies get copied, and you have whole families of documents with these errors in them. And people sometimes will say, well, yeah, but if you compare all the documents together, so many of them have this in there. Well, yes, because you're finding those particular families with all of that in there. Now, this might cause you to say, how do we trust anything? But what's amazing is that the more copies we find, the more we can compare. And the more we can compare, the more we find they are, for the most part, absolutely identical. For so many years, 1,500 years of things being copied and recopied and recopied, by and large, all of it agrees with each other. And it's astounding. But also, as we're able to compare some things and scholars find these earlier documents, they are able to trace down, as is the case here with John 8, or 7.53 through 8.11, they are able to say, look, there's just not good support that this was in what John wrote. And they are able to find these things. This is why, if you have the King James Bible, it doesn't have this in brackets. It doesn't have any note here because the manuscripts they had had it in there. The English Standard Version, the NIV, uh, many of the other later translations are going to mark it out because they found better documents. Occasionally, some people will say that firmly believe that the King James is the only Bible that anybody should use. They'll say, see, your Bible removed things. That's because archaeologists found better evidence. But before we throw out the Bible as being completely untrustworthy, it's helpful to compare this to other historical documents. Because other historical documents are used by historians and thought to be credible evidence, and the copies of those documents are studied about the history of that time. And when we understand what they accept as an authority in those areas, it helps us to see the Bible in a better light. So let me just give you a few examples. Julius Caesar wrote, or was written about him, what's known as the Gaelic Wars. This was around 58 to 50 BC, before Christ. It is accepted as being written by him. We only have in existence 10 copies of this text. 10, that's it. Of those 10 copies, all of them date to over 900 years after they were written. 10 copies, only 900 years later. And yet history, historians, scholarships, Scholars read that and say, we have an accurate transmission of that text. There's only 20 manuscripts of Livy's Roman history written roughly during the time when Jesus was alive, and we only have 20 of those, and yet scholars trust it. Only two manuscripts exist for Tacitus's histories and the annals, which were composed around A.D. 100, and those two copies 
are from the 9th and one from the 11th century. So 800 years afterward. There are only eight manuscripts of the history of Thucydides who lived 460 to 400 BC. Now, you, please, I don't expect you to remember any of that, okay? But what I do want you to remember is this. Studying old documents is hard. We're dealing with copies of copies of copies. Sometimes those copies were only copied hundreds, hundreds of years after the event. And yet, in the secular world, they trust these copies. Now listen to what we have for the word of God. When we compare those numbers with the manuscripts and partial manuscripts that we have of the New Testament, the weightiness of the evidence for for the the proper transmission of this and the trustworthiness of the text is astounding. There are 322 what are known as unctual texts. Those are Greek texts written in uppercase, which was kind of the original way that they would write Greek. 2,907 minuscule texts, that's more of a lowercase Greek that came about a little later. 2,445 lectionary portions, these were copies of scripture that were written in an order to be used in public worship. In total, oh, and then 127 of the papyri. Papyri, papyrus was made from grass, crushed together, woven together to be paper to write on. Not the sturdiest stuff in the world. And those are the really ancient ones. But we even have of those 127. In total, we have over 5,800 entire or partial manuscripts of the New Testament. All handwritten copies of the New Testament or parts of the New Testament preserved and studied around the world. That is a massive amount of copies of a historical document. Some of these manuscripts date as early as 200 AD. Now understand what that means. Please hear this. If John wrote the book of John around 90 AD, which is about when I think he wrote it, and in 200 AD we have a fragment of that book, that means that just over 100 years passed before we have a copy of that original. That's a very small amount of time when you're talking about historical documents. We have a significant portion of the New Testament uh, documents as early as 250 A.D. And by uh, 350 A.D., we have entire copies of the New, Text, New Testament that, that give witness to all of these books. So we have many copies and we have very early copies. And what's amazing for all of these copies... All of this copying with no computers, no no copiers, no internet to distribute it. There are not many differences at all. This is a trustworthy text. When there is a difference, it's usually in the wording, the language. It's extremely minor. None of these differences changes a major theological issue. The only exception I can think of that has what some people make into a major theological issue is the end of Mark, where they talk about handling snakes. And some people think that's what churches should do. Um, Their belief in that usually comes back to bite them at some point. So I had to get a joke in. I had to. This is, I took classes on this in college. I hate it. 
So if you're sitting here going, oh, I don't want to talk about this. Man, I don't want to either, okay? But we have to deal with the text. Let me just read Piper's comments on this briefly, and then we'll move on. So when I agree with the vast majority of scholars that the story of the woman taken in adultery was not in the Gospel of John, you should not think, oh my, everything is up for grabs now, or how can I count on any text? On the contrary, you can be thankful that God has in his sovereign providence over the transmission process for 2,000 years ordered things so that the few uncertainties that remain alter no doctrine of the Christian faith. That is really astonishing when you think about it, and we should worship God because of it. Piper then, after those introductory words, goes on to preach the text. (laughs) I'm using a commentary by D.A. Carson. He has paragraph after paragraph about why it shouldn't be in the text, and then he goes on to give commentary on the text. I met with the elders on Thursday night, and I talked to them, and I said, guys, I can't preach this text. And they agreed with me, and so now we're going to do what I would have liked to have done at the start. We're going to go on to chapter 8, verse 12. So turn with me to chapter... John chapter 8, verse 12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but have the light of life. In first service, I spent some time on this, and then I felt like I had to get through chapter 8, verse 30. I think today, or for you guys in this service, I'm not going to do that. We're going to stop with this verse because I want to spend just what remaining time we have on this verse. If you look at chapter 7, verse 2, I said last week before we talked about uh, the passage where Jesus says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink, and he talks about living water flowing out of them. We based all that on chapter 7, verse 2, when the Jewish festival of the tabernacles was near. That passage in chapter 7, verses 1 to 52, takes place during this festival of the tabernacles. This is another reason people don't think that passage belongs, because it really seems like they're still at the the festival of the tabernacles. And so if it was the last and greatest day, there can't be another night and then come back and still have it be the festival of the tabernacles. But I talked about what was that festival of the tabernacles? It was a celebration and a remembrance of what God did in the Exodus. God led his people out. He saved them out of Egypt, took them through the wilderness, through the Red Sea, and eventually brought them to the promised land of Israel. And so every year they would gather. And they used the harvest as the time to celebrate this because it was time of plenty. So it was a great time to have a feast. And it was a time of remembering annually how God had blessed them. And so every year they used that to look beyond just that year to say, remember when God saved us. Remember when our ancestors had to live in tents in the wilderness. That's what tabernacle means. It means a tent. And so they would come together in Jerusalem and they would set up these temporary tents or booths, some uh, translations say. And the whole week was a festival of celebration. Jewish scholars called it the most joyous of all of the Jewish festivals. It was a time to just have great joy over what God had done. And at that festival, there were two key things 
as the festival went on on that last and greatest day. And we looked at the one last week, this water ritual. They would take a, a golden chalice or, or pitcher and they would dip it into one of the pools and they would parade it through Jerusalem as this water of life, this symbol that God has always provided life for them. And of course, we talked about last week, Jesus stands up and he says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. He said, guys, what you're celebrating right now and what's bringing you joy, that's about me. And then, chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Because on that day, when the sun went down, they set up multiple lampstands around the temple area and they lit them. And the people each got a torch or a lantern and they all came into the courtyard of the temple and they lit them. And they danced, and they sang, and they worshipped the Lord. Jewish historians record that it looked like Jerusalem lit up. You could see it from a distance on that night, because they were celebrating. And why did they use light? What was the point of light in the story of the Exodus? How did God guide them at night? A pillar of fire. So when they were wandering in the darkest times of one of the darkest times in their history, wondering how are we going to make it another night? How are we going to get through this? How do we know we're going the right direction? They would say, look, there's God and he's leading us. And so every year they would celebrate that with this festival that included so many lights. And look at what Jesus says. I am the light of the world and whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Light to the Jewish people meant the very presence of God. It was a symbol that God was with them, and they used light as that symbol. It was also a symbol of God's leading. And so when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, whoever follows me, he's saying, just like you followed God and the light in the darkness back then that led you through the wilderness, so I am the light of the world. And whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but have the light of life. There's two phrases here. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. If we take this at face value, what it means is those who don't trust Jesus, don't follow him, are walking in darkness. Now, oftentimes, especially on Sundays, I get up before my wife and and I try not to disturb her. I don't turn the light on in my room and and I get dressed, and you can probably tell, but I usually get dressed in the dark. And and I know I'm in the dark, right? I, I know it. It's some mornings more painful than others, but it's painfully aware that I am in the dark because I'm, I'm hitting my shins on things or I'm tripping over other things and I'm trying to get ready. But the light in the dark that John is talking about, that Jesus is talking about, is the same kind of darkness that causes us to stumble, but we think we see. He picked that up in chapter 1 when he said, Jesus, this light is coming to the world, but the world did not receive him. Oh, we think we see. We think we can make good choices, but we actually are blind and in the dark. But then he says, those who follow him will have the light of life. Those who trust in Jesus. It's not just that we will see the light or that we accept the light, 
But that light becomes a part of us. And again, what was light to the Jewish mind? The very presence of God. It was a symbol of God's presence. So when he says, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life, he's saying the very presence of God will be with you forever. And we talked about that last week when John said, after Jesus talks about streams of living waters will flow from within him, and John adds in verse 39, by this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. The very presence of God with us is the light in our life. It illuminates the world around us so we no longer see through the blindness of our own eyes or the darkness of our own understanding, but through Jesus Christ, we see the world as it truly is. The Bible also talks about God's word being light to us. So when we have the presence of God, we have the word of God as a lamp to our feet, we can see clearly Jesus is the light of the world. Man, winters in Rochester are long. And I don't know about you, but days like today, I can see that giant tree out there just covered in ice. I told somebody this morning, I was like, it's just wrong that we have to pay our taxes before the time when, when it's even warm out. Like, there's just something about that that's wrong. And they said, well, we shouldn't have to pay them at all. But uh, that's a whole different issue. But I think living here, especially, and conversations constantly this time of year, it's coming. It's got to come. We're going to get that sun soon. We're going to get that warmth soon. Winter's going to pass away. And you think in that culture, the darkness of their night, longing for the light to come. And you think of this courtyard of lamps and lanterns being lit and just lighting up the whole surrounding area. It's not just our weather, friends, right now that's dark. It's our world. And just like their world, we think we see. We think we've got it all together. And we need to hear the words of Jesus. He is the light of the world. There's some darkness that looks brighter than others. I'll watch that. I'll I'll listen to this. This will help me get through. But we need to hear the words of Jesus. He is the light of the world. Maybe you're here today and you're struggling. And, And maybe you're in a dark, dark time right now. And you're trying to make sense of your life. You're trying to make sense of your relationships. You're trying to find your way. I want you to hear today the words of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And if everything I said at the beginning, the first part of this sermon, if if all of that just kind of made your eyes glaze over, please hear that truth. Jesus is the light of the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are so good to us. You know us better than we know ourselves. You know our world better than anybody. You know the darkness that we live in. You know our our pride, our sinful outlook that, that says we think we've got it all together. We think we've got it all figured out. We think we can see and understand clearly. And yet, you know, we don't. In your grace, you sent your Son. That in the darkness of our moments, of our individual lives, and of our world, the light has come. 
I pray, Father, if there's anyone here today struggling, may they run to that light. May they follow that light, which means trusting in who you are, trusting in your Son as their Savior, that they might have that light of eternal life in them. Pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.